welcome everyone to an edition of Governed by God, a biblical look at law, civics, and government. My name is Eric Lupo. Thank you for joining me on today's episode. So we finished a series a few weeks back on the topic of tyranny and the solution to tyranny, the freedom from tyranny. Um, so today I wanted to cover a topic that's kind of more of a, a response to a challenge, not directly to me, but a challenge that I've heard in, on various podcasts and uh, in reading various articles about um, a biblical system of government. Essentially, the argument is that the Bible is not sufficient. It does not give us the recipe for a system of government, a system of law and order, and that that's why uh, we have to uh, get information from other sources, such as natural law or other philosophers. And this is something that both Christians and non-Christians have have said. There are, there are certainly non-Christians would say that the Bible should not be used in any way for a system of government. And then there are Christians who are divided on the matter. Uh, some Christians would say, well, it gives some principles, but does not give enough information we have to look at other philosophers or uh, natural law, whereas some Christians, such as myself, think that we have a sufficient amount of information to get a pretty solid uh, concept of biblical government. But before we dive into that topic, I want to cover our passage of the day, which is going to be related, but this is the passage. The passage is Deuteronomy chapter 4, verses 5 through 8, and here's what it says. See, I have taught you statutes and rules, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, Surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it as the Lord our God is to us? whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I have set before you today? So that is uh, the statement of Moses talking to the people of Israel. And he's simply pointing out to them that they, as a nation, with all these laws that they've been given, they are supposed to be a light, an example to the nations around them. And he says this explicitly, that these rules are going to be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of all the peoples. So when Israel is established, all the nations around them, Babylon, Assyria, Egypt, they're going to look at Israel and they should say, they should, when they see Israel uh, living out God's law, they should say that this is a great, wise, and understanding nation. Okay, that's what they're supposed to say. Now, obviously, Israel messes that one up big time. They don't follow God's laws. In fact, they actually follow the laws of the nations around them, the pagan nations, the Canaanites, and groups like that. So they don't actually obey God's laws. And maybe when they do, it's only for a short period of time, and most of the time they have wicked rulers and wicked judges over them. So, the point in all of this is that God's law was meant to be an example. And it's always meant to be an example of what 
righteousness looks like. And it's not just for God's people. The other nations of the earth should look at God, should look at his laws, and they should see just how righteous they are and how awesome God is. It should be, like I said, a light. Now, how does this apply today? Well, on an individual level, um, unbelievers should look at the lives of Christians, uh, each and every one of us, and, and should be able to say something like, I wonder why they are that way. I wonder what they do or who they serve or what they worship. And even Peter, in his letters, says, always be ready to give a defense for the hope that you have within you. So essentially, others should see your conduct and they should maybe be encouraged to ask some questions. But anyways, um, Christians are to live a certain way in accordance with God's laws as uh, fulfilled in Christ now that Christ has come. And we're to model that. The same thing is true for families, by the way. A family that is Christian and that seeks to serve the Lord, they should be a model for other families and other families should see them and maybe ask some questions. Same is true for cities or for entire nations. If a nation is following after God's laws and and doing so in the name of Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit, then other nations might look at that and say, that's interesting, that's a better law system than we have. So that is our passage of the day. The point of it simply being that there is biblical mandate for understanding that God's laws are meant, and even today, are meant to be an example for the nations. You can't fulfill the law without the power of Christ and the Holy Spirit. He fulfills it. But as believers, we are to be sanctified. We are to walk in newness of life. We are to live out the commandments of God in light of Christ. What does it mean to be clean or to be set apart or all these things that God's law requires now that Christ has come? And what does it mean to obey the Ten Commandments now that Christ has come? And this is a blueprint for uh, um, us as, as individuals, as families, and as countries, as nations. So that is our law of the day. And let's roll right into um, the question, does Scripture provide a system of government? Now, it's kind of a yes and no uh, answer. And I, I know people don't really like that. Kind of like it, it depends is the answer, right? But uh, yes, in one sense, in its principles that it gives us. Does that mean that every single aspect of a government just comes from Scripture as if it's, um, you know, instructions on how to build a Lego set or, or how to install a stereo system or something like that? Uh, no, no. God does not give a thousand page list of exactly how you do it. Uh, when it comes to forming a government, but he does give principles. But what's interesting is that even with Israel and the theocracy of Israel, there were areas of flexibility. Yes, God gave very specific rules on certain things, such as the animal sacrifices, but there are some areas that we don't really know, or God doesn't really give explicit description on how this is to be done. Let's give you this one example. In Deuteronomy chapter 1, Verses 9 through 15, Moses talks about 
appointing leaders and judges in Israel. And now here's what he says. In verse 9, he says, At that time I said to you, I am not able to bear you by myself. The Lord your God has multiplied you, and behold, you are today as numerous as the stars of heaven. May the Lord, the God of your fathers, make you a thousand times as many as you are, and bless you as he has promised you. How can I bear myself the weight and burden of you and your strife? Choose for your tribes wise, understanding, and experienced men, and I will appoint them as your heads. And you answered me, the thing that you have spoken is good for us to do. So I took the heads of your tribes, wise and experienced men, and set them as heads over you, commanders of thousands, commanders of hundreds, commanders of fifties, commanders of tens, and officers throughout your tribes. So here in this passage, Moses is saying, choose for yourselves, you know, among all your tribes, you choose for yourselves, kind of however you do it, um, men that you think uh, would be good leaders of the of the tens, the fifties, the hundreds, and the thousands. And then Moses would anoint them or appoint them or um, give authority to them. So it's kind of a top-down and bottom-up approach. They, they rise up from the people, but they are appointed and ordained by the highest authority, by God's spokesman. But it doesn't say how they are to choose them. How does this work? I don't know how this works. And maybe there are some... Um, sources outside of the Bible that tells us how these leaders were chosen. Did all the elders and heads of households just get together and and vote on it, or did they cast lots? Or um, I, I don't know. But that is one example where God does not specify how something is done. It could have been through an election. I don't know who who would have the right to vote. Probably just the men the heads of the households, and the landowners. Um, well, at the time, of course, they don't even own any land. They're, they're nomads waiting to enter the land of Israel. So it wouldn't have been landowners. It would have been just the heads of fathers' houses. Okay. So anyways, the point in all that is simply saying that there are principles that God sets forth, and it is by these principles that any nation that wishes to be a well-ordered, well-structured, thriving nation uh, is going to want to follow these principles. And what I'm looking at here today is specifically the civil government. I'm not looking at family government, church government, individual government. All right, so what are those principles? Principle number one, we're sinners. That's it. Simple. We are sinners. Um, that comes from Scripture. It's very clear in Scripture. Now, as sinners, we can destroy many things with what we have. An example of this is Ecclesiastes 9.18, which says, Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Okay? So, giving too much power to one person is dangerous, because we're all sinners. If we weren't sinners, if people were naturally good, then there would be no problem with putting a lot of power in the hands of one person, because think about it. Think of how efficient that would be. If you just get one perfect person, give them all the power, and they can make everything right. And then you have no problems, and you have a very well-ordered, uh, very efficient uh, government system. But we don't live like that. We don't live in that kind of a world. We live in a world where all of us are sinners, and power is very tempting. Money, power, wealth, all of it is very corrupting. 
and it's it's too tempting for one person to have all of it, right? So we spread the power around. In fact, Solomon says this in Ecclesiastes 5.8. He says, if you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter. For the high officials watch by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. What he's pointing out is that the way that government's typically structured is one guy's got a lot of power, but over him is another guy with even more power. And that fear and that power that is wielded kind of trickles down in the sense of oppression and tyranny. Um, There's no defense against that kind of uh, centralized authority uh, from above. There's no protection against it. There's no recourse against it. So, okay, putting it all in the hands of one person might be efficient. And maybe if you get a really, really good person, you can do a lot of good. But the point of this principle is that since we're all sinners, it would be better if we spread the power out instead of consolidating it into one person. Now, of course, you might say, well, now, if you spread the power out, then nothing's going to get done. People are just going to, you know, go against each other, and it's just going to gum up the works, and it's going to be a very inefficient government. And the answer to that is amen, is amen. It's better to do nothing at all than to do great harm. And the chance of you getting a very good saintly person with all the power is very slim. And and of course, you have to hope that that person, once they have all the power, doesn't become evil, doesn't become wicked. So um, even though it is very inefficient for checks and balances to exist and to diffuse power among a lot of people, it's the best way to do it given our fallen nature. And that's a principle set forth in God's words. That's principle number one, uh, uh, checks and balances in power. Principle number two, division of power into legislative, executive, and judicial. Now, this is connected to both the time and the function of the office being discussed. So consider this, uh, judicial, being a judge, it concerns primarily the past. Something happened and a judge determines who was wrong and what rule was broken? Was it broken at all? So a judge is more past-focused, focused on the past. The executive branch, the person that enforces the rules, is more focused on right now. What are the laws right now? Who's guilty? Who's innocent? And who gets punished? And let's enforce the current laws right now. So uh, the executive power is more focused on the here and the now, the present. And then legislative power is more focused on the future. You see some kind of a problem and you come up with a law that will address that problem uh, in the future. And the, pro- and the law is going to be enacted in the future and imposed upon people living in the future. So um, it doesn't mean that none of these branches or groups look uh, – you know, and other time zones, if you will. But the legislative branch is more future-focused, is supposed to be, okay? It's past, present, future. It's judging the law, enforcing the law, and, um, and declaring the law, creating the law. And of course, God divides this up in Scripture. It was first unified in Adam. Adam was the prophet, the priest, and the king. And each of those corresponds to one of the branches of power. A prophet proclaims law. A prophet... Um, declares law and teaches law. So that's kind of the legislative branch. The priest and the priests of Israel did this. They were to judge the law. 
They were to judge whether someone broke it or did not break it. And then the king was the enforcer of the law to ensure that it was followed and the wicked were punished. And this is divided up in Israel. In the, in the nation of Israel, you have the kings and you have the elders. They're your executive branch. You have the priests and the judges. They are your judicial branch. And you have the prophets with God's law given from God himself as the legislative branch. And God's law served as the constitution that bound the whole nation together. Now, only God unifies the power, brings them all back together again. And we see this in Isaiah 33, verse 22, where the prophet says this. He says, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. He will save us. So right there, Isaiah explicitly describes three separate branches of government and roles of power, judge, lawgiver, king, prophet, priest, king, and only God fulfills all three of those roles. Now, of course, they're unified in Christ. Jesus Christ is the fulfillment of that. He gives law, he enforces law, he judges law. That's what Jesus uh, does. So that's principle number two, uh, division of law into legislative, judicial, and executive branches. Principle three, a federalist system of power, vertical, a vertical, a kind of like a layer cake or maybe even nesting dolls uh, or, or circles inside of circles, uh, a federalist system of decentralized power. Now, an example of this, I mean, we just read Deuteronomy 1, 9 through 15, where Moses establishes commanders of thousands, hundreds, fifties, tens, okay, and, and the commanders of tens are to judge those laws, and if it's too hard for them, then they can appeal up to the next layer, but they are to handle things in their uh, specific domain. We see this in um, Exodus 18, verse 13 through 27. This is Jethro's advice, and I'm not going to read it all, but, but, but his father-in-law Jethro tells him, you can't handle this all by yourself. You need to, you need to appoint judges uh, in, in all these places, look for able-bodied men who can judge the people at all times. And he says in verse uh, 22, every great matter they shall bring to you, but any small matter they shall decide themselves. So it will be easier for you and they will bear the burden with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure and all this people also will go to their place in peace. So that's the end of that section, verse 23. So the point here is that there's supposed to be a division of labor, um, kind of a, a federalist system of local uh, city and then state or nation uh, levels of government in order to minimize uh, difficulty and increase efficiency and keep things as local as possible. So that's that's federalism. And there's examples of this all throughout Scripture. Uh, Deuteronomy 22, verses 13 through 21, the elders of the town of that particular town where the crime occurred. They do the whipping and the stoning of the criminal. Uh, Deuteronomy 21, 1 through 9, the elders of the city are responsible for any unsolved crimes. So if there is a, a dead body that's found, the closest town is responsible for making atonement for that unsolved uh, murder. Um, and then, of course, sometimes the whole town itself, all the people 
are involved in enforcing the law because the people are citizens, right? And they have delegated some authority to the elders, but it resides in them to obey God's law. And in Deuteronomy 21, 18 through 21, the rebellious son, the drunkard and the glutton who won't listen to his parents, this is kind of like a teenager or a, a young adult, um, the men of the city, the men of the city are to stone that son once it's been determined by two or three witnesses that he's guilty and he's been um, declared to be so uh, by the judges. Then it is the the men of the town that are to enforce this uh, this law. So uh, God's law is is enforced and established from the very bottom up, local level all the way to the top. It's not just one person at the tippy top doing everything um, and having all the power. So that is just one example of federalism. And another one is also seen in the boundaries of the tribes of Israel. So God established 12 tribes of Israel, and they're not to be absorbed by other tribes. You're not to have a situation in which one tribe loses its land uh, to the other tribe and then becomes um, absorbed into that. And so here's an example from Numbers chapter 36, verse 7. The inheritance of the people of Israel shall not be transferred from one tribe to another, for every one of the people of Israel shall hold on to the inheritance of the tribe of his fathers. And every daughter who possesses an inheritance in any tribe of the people of Israel shall be wife to one of the clan of the tribe of her father, so that every one of the people of Israel may possess the inheritance of his fathers. So no inheritance shall be transferred from one tribe to another, for each of the tribes of the people of Israel shall hold on to its own inheritance. So there, God is establishing a system so that one state or one tribe does not absorb another tribe over time, and then power and wealth get centralized into one location. God has established these boundaries. These 12 tribes will always have their boundaries of land. They will always have their tribes so that this system, this federal system can be maintained because each tribe has its own elders of its cities. So cities and elders are to handle their own laws, okay? And then each tribe is to handle its issues inside of that tribe. And then big things that are national are to be handled at the national level by the king or the great, uh, the great congregation of elders, which we'll talk about here shortly. Um, now, what's interesting is that this is contrasted with the pagan kings in 1 Samuel chapter 8, when Samuel warns Israel about what's going to happen if they choose a king like the other nations. And he, and this is uh, 1 Samuel 8, 10 through 18, he says that these will be the ways of the king who will reign over you. Okay, So they're not good, though. He says, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. And he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties. Um, he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and olive orchards. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take, he will take. It's just the same thing over and over again. He will take the tenth of your flocks and you shall be his slaves. And in that day you will cry out because of your king. So the pagan kings centralize and accumulate power to themselves. And it's very heavy top-down approach, not uh, decentralized. And it's interesting is that after Samuel warns Israel of this, they don't care. They want a king like the other nations. And they say this in verse 
In verse 19 and 20, they say, No, but there shall be a king over us, that we may also be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. So they want this king to do all these things for them, but God does not want them to live like that. He does not want them to have that kind of um, idolatrous attitude, which ultimately leads to a centralization of power. So like I said before, God established Israel to have city power, tribal power, and national power. And there's elders in the cities, elders in the tribes, and then there's the great congregation, which is explicitly described in Exodus 24, verses 1 through 11, where God appoints 70 elders of all of Israel to to serve. So that's that's principle uh, three. Principle four is that there's the rule of law, case law. Just going to very briefly go through this. The point here is that the Constitution, the Ten Commandments, is the highest authority in the land, and even the king was under that authority. This is Deuteronomy 17, verses 14 through 20. The king had to write for himself a copy of the law, and it was graded by the priests, and he was to obey that law, the Ten Commandments. And these laws um, were to serve as the laws of the whole nation. And it was a very common law system. So um, so th- that kind of a system is that the laws that you see in, in the Old Testament, like laws about not muzzling an ox or having a parapet around your roof, those are common law case laws. They're examples. They don't just apply in those specific situations. You would take the principles from those laws and apply them to similar situations. So they served as examples on what it looks like to love your neighbor. So the Ten Commandments are the top. That's the Constitution of Israel. And then all of the other laws are are examples or case laws of what it means to not steal, to not commit adultery, to not murder, things like that. So it's a common law system. And the law was very easy and simple to understand. In Deuteronomy 27, verses 1 through 8, God commands um, Moses to set up a public monument on the boundary of the land before they enter it. And in clear letters, in clear, simple words, easy to understand is to be the Ten Commandments, the laws of Israel. And it didn't require a special lawyer. Um, It was very public. And even foreigners could know what's expected of them when they enter into the land of Israel. So it's, it's rule by the rule of law. Principle number five, punishment is to fit to crime. You have the eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth passages, uh, does not mean personal vengeance. It means that if someone uh, takes an eye, the punishment is an eye. You don't go up and above, you know, you know, one up the person and go above and beyond it. Um, it's meant to contain punishment and contain vengeance. They should match. Punishment should fit the crime and be quick. Principle number six, justice should be objective, should be blind. The blindfolding of Lady Justice, right? Uh, Leviticus 19.15, no partiality of the rich or of the poor. Exodus 23.2, don't side with the majority. Don't side with the mob to pervert justice. Deuteronomy 16.19, don't accept bribes. There's to be cities of refuge to hear cases. Numbers 35.22-29, cities of refuge that someone could run to and get an objective third party to judge their case. Um, outside of the local area, if they didn't think that they could get a fair trial uh, in the local area. And so when we look at all this, let's put them all together, all six of these principles. Number one, checks and balances. Number two, three branches of government. Number three, multiple levels of a federalist system. Number four, rule of law by constitution. Number five, punishment is to fit the crime. And number six, objective justice system.
just consider what does that look like today? What kind of a system of government most closely resembles that today? Um, and I think you'll see um, the importance of using scripture and deriving our system of government from the Bible and the pattern that was set for the nation of Israel. Now, does that mean that we cannot learn anything outside of Scripture? No, that's, that's not what it means. But all things must be brought into submission to Scripture. And so there are areas of flexibility. For example, should we have a two houses in a legislature or just a single house? Okay. Should there be a prime minister and a president or just the president? Should there be a constitutional monarchy with a parliament or should there be a president with a congress? Do, do there need to be seven justices on the Supreme Court or nine or five or 13? Should there be term limits or, or terms for life for, for judges? Should there be voting by all adults, voting by just the landowners, voting by just the heads of households, or should it be a lottery vote? So these are all areas of flexibility and that each culture is going to have to determine on their own. Um, and there might be some best practices, cost and benefit to each and every one of these different flavors, if you will. But they fit within the general pattern, general structure that God clearly lays out for us. And as long as a nation is trying to um, divide up its power into three branches, multiple levels, with a rule by constitution, and if they're really trying to make the punishments fit the crime and be objective in their justice system and use checks and balances to contain the evil of mankind, if they're doing that, they're well on their way. Like That is exactly what it means to live in a free society that thrives and that flourishes under um, the principles that God has set forth. And there are probably many more principles that we could glean from Scripture today, but I just wanted to cover those six due to how important they are, and our, our time limitations. So at the end of the day, um, while there are differences among cultures, we're all humans, and there's always a human nature, which remains the same, the fallen nature of mankind. And God has designed every single human and all cultures to uh, be able to serve him appropriately. So God's word applies to all uh, cultures and all peoples at all times. Now, the debate is interpretation and application, but I think it's it's fairly, it's easier than people try to make it or want to make it. So um, anyways, I, I hope that you found this to be somewhat helpful. Um, maybe, you know, just consider these things as you look at various uh, systems of government in the world today. But of course, if you have any questions about these topics or more aspects of government and God's law, please email me at thegbgpodcast at gmail.com. You can also find me on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, all those places. Just look for Governed by God or Eric Leupold and message me there. And of course, please share this show with a friend so that uh, we can get this information out to more people. So thank you again for tuning in. And until next time, take care and God bless.